Hi, I'm Tom Clark from Global Public Affairs. Welcome to another edition of The Take. So, how's that for an October surprise? The President and First Lady, and likely a whole lot more from his inner circle, have all come down with COVID with very uncertain outcomes. You know, this has the capacity to completely upend this very weird presidential election in unimaginable ways, but in the world we can imagine, the one that we know, it's really not that much less weird. So, did you see that debate or what they called a debate just a few days ago? I think every adjective in the English language has already been used to describe it, at least all the negative ones anyway. And there were even some that don't appear in the dictionary and Chicho comes to mind. Uh, Let's just say the whole thing was an absolute disgrace. But there it is, the real beginning of the campaign for the presidency of the United States. And we here in Canada or any other country around the world can only sit and watch, albeit with our jaws on the floor. But while we can't do anything about it, we can certainly talk about it and what it will mean to us and to the rest of the world So for the next five weeks, we're going to do just that, a weekly episode right after each debate. So the remaining two presidential debates and then the one vice presidential debate, that's if they actually go off. It's kind of up in the air right now. Uh, And then we're going to do another one just before Election Day. And quite frankly, we may even do more than five if this whole thing spins more out of control than it already is. We're going to talk with Uh, politicians, former politicians, journalists, academics, among others. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with an old friend of mine, Ali Velshi. He works at MSNBC. You may remember him. He worked in Canadian television for a long time before he moved south of the border. And he's got an interesting story because he is now under personal attack by Donald Trump because Ali got shot with a rubber bullet during a protest. Go figure. Anyway, To start this series off, I am really happy to welcome another old friend of mine, Chris Sands. He's the director of the Canada Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, but he's a whole lot more than that. He's a proud son of Detroit. He's a PhD who has taught at, among other universities, Johns Hopkins and American University. He's worked in some of the most influential think tanks in Washington, D.C., and he literally lives and breathes the relationship between Canada and the United States. Chris, welcome. Good to have you here. Thanks very much, Tom. Great to be back with you on the the take. Well, and under under these circumstances, look, there's only one place to start this conversation, the debacle, or the debate, as some people called it. Uh, You know, we've all seen the clips. Uh, A lot of us saw the debate. 73 million Americans at least watched that debate. Highest rating of any debate since debate started in 1960. So given a few days out from this debate and taking a look at the fallout from it, uh, in your view, what effect did it have on the campaign? And importantly, what effect has it had on the American political psyche? I think it's a fascinating question because I think in some ways, Donald Trump has deconstructed the debate. It, it isn't what we're used to seeing a Canadian leaders debate, for example, where, where there are actually arguments made, policies floated. It's all now about sound bites and short clips you can send out on Twitter, not TikTok, of course, uh, in order to get your fans to cheer because you got your zinger lines in. And mm. 
uh, you watch both uh, Biden and Trump trying to make these sort of short quips, but it sounded, I think, to most people sort of trying to follow it, uh, almost disjointed. It it really was a, a strange experience. But part of the reason for that, I think, is that the audience isn't what it was. For presidential debates, we used to be trying to reach that sort of policy intellectual uh, news junkie who really paid attention to the details. Now, I think both leaders, and this is probably part of our more populist politics right now, they were trying to rile up their own base. And at the same time, uh, for the undecideds, and there aren't that many apparently, according to the polls this year, trying to get them just to stay home so yeah. that it, so they just turn the whole process off. And it's a strange place we find ourselves, but, uh, but I think they've redefined the objective of this kind of conversation, and uh, we'll just see if this is a new normal or, uh, or, as we used to say about Cleveland, a mistake by the lake. <laughs> but, you know, it... <laughs> It, it does, though, you know, in all the other debates that I've seen on either side of the border or even those in Europe, for that matter, I have never seen a debate that garnered such uh, such reaction as this one did. Um, I'm not hearing a lot of people saying it was wonderful or it was great. Well, Donald Trump thinks he won and he thought it was great. Uh, but I'm not hearing from anybody else, any other quarter, that this was something to be proud of, in fact, you know, the instant analysis after the debate was this was not only disgraceful, but this really hurt the United States as the whole world was watching uh, the state of politics in the United States. Did you read it that way? Uh, you know, it's hard to hard to imagine how this affects people outside the country. I We tried to watch it at home. And uh, one of the things that my, my lovely wife picked up on right away was that when you step back, it, it was three men over 70 shouting at each other. <laughs> and I think for the half of the electorate or maybe more who are, who are women, this was an absolute impossible uh, way to hear about politics. Um, so for, for me, I think this, this was one of those things where they so narrow cast their audience, they so focused on it that it just, um, they ignored everyone else. So women, but also the rest of the world. It wasn't as though they were talking to as leaders of the free world or prospective leaders of the free world. It was as if they were having a street fight and nothing else mattered. In a broader sense, Chris, when you think about Donald Trump and all the changes that he has brought upon America and American politics and American standing in the world, is Donald Trump ultimately the cause of all of this or is he a symptom? of the decline in American politics? Well, that's a tough question. I think he is a symptom more than a cause. Some of the trends that he's capitalized on have been brewing for a long time. Dissatisfaction with the bipartisan establishment and the policies they pursued, whether it's free trade or uh, or serving as the world's policeman, uh, as some would say, that really weren't very popular at home. and. The 2008-2009 financial crisis, which was the the proximate sort of launching of some of the more populist politics in the U.S., uh, you know, led people in both parties to want to walk away from that global leadership role, which seemed so costly, and particularly to hit America, uh, an American economy, uh, pretty hard. So we saw um, we saw both Barack Obama and. Donald Trump uh, talking about pulling our troops back from Afghanistan, from the Middle East, and that was a popular move. And 
the Trump trade policy, which is all these other countries are taking advantage of us. We need better deals. One big bipartisan majorities in the House and Senate when the USMCA came forward. And you don't hear a lot of debate about trade. Even even uh, Joe Biden says, well, the new agreement is better than the old NAFTA and because he knows that's where most voters are. You, I, I'm flashing back a little bit to, uh, to a time before either of you or I were watching on the scene, and that's the, the years after World War I and World War II. After World War I, the U.S. really did say, to heck with Europe, we want to just be left alone, and we retreated from the League of Nations and, and tried to keep our troops at home, only to find that we had to be in Europe again for World War II. At the end of World War II, uh, people like Lester Pearson and Odie Skelton and sort of a, an array, Louis Saint of Canadian leaders focused on how to keep the Americans from, from falling back after World War II the way we did after World War I. The result was a bipartisan uh, success in the U.S., a real engagement, a U.S. leadership as had never been seen before. But when you look at where we are now uh, with the U.S. economy, uh, no longer where it was, people worried about the decline in manufacturing, the competitive pressure of China, and saying, you know, we're sick of the wars in the Middle East, we'd like to bring our troops home. It, is it something new or is it a reversion to form? It may be that the post-World War II era was the outlier and that this is, this is a true picture of where the United States is. In any event, it may be our worst instincts, but uh, Donald Trump has certainly capitalized on that. And to go to go a little bit farther back, uh, Barack Obama also talked about building at home uh, before we built abroad. And George W. Bush before uh, 9-11 was saying, you know, let's not nation build abroad, let's nation build at home. So there are long trends here. I'm, I'm not sure that they put the U.S. in the best light. But I think even if Joe Biden wins this election, some of this will still be with us. Yeah, I, I wanted to pick up on that because... You know, this may be the end of, of Donald Trump's political career. Uh, I, I noticed there's a, a poll out, the first sort of substantive poll that came out after the debates showed a 13% bump for Biden, and uh, but Trump still at 40%. So, I mean, I guess what I'm asking about is we can say goodbye to Donald Trump, perhaps, but what about Trumpism? I mean, 41%, 40, 41%, perhaps even more of Americans believe that Donald Trump is doing a good job. And to your point, they like his policies and they would vote for him again. I mean, that's almost one out of every two Americans say that they like Trumpism and everything it stands for. How is that going to change the landscape, even if Donald Trump is defeated? Well, two things. I think actually, if if Donald Trump's policy record was on the ballot, uh, it would get pretty broad support. Let's say, for example, Mike Pence was uh, the innocuous front runner without all of the personality uh, quirks of Donald Trump. I, I actually do think it would be very popular. That's that's the strange thing here. If Joe, if Joe Biden wins, he'll face a crossroads. On the one hand, he, by instinct, he's a centrist, traditional Democrat. You can imagine him uh, supporting the United Nations, NATO, uh, reaching out to allies, all the things that I think most Canadians would like. But he, he sits in the center of American politics, but much of his base is as radicalized as Trump's, just a different agenda. And for him, he's going to have to decide where his support for governing is. If it's 
his base that we traditionally think of, the same folks like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez who want the Green New Deal, that want a radical revision of capitalism, that are interested in guaranteed basic income, aggressive action on climate change, uh, and and more uh, social justice agenda, um, he could go that way. But I think that Trump base would react if he goes if he decides instead that the, that the left is too hot. He could find quite a few Trump voters who would support him, and quite a few Republicans who would support him. Uh, but whether he he goes from the center to a little bit the center right, uh, that would be a long bridge for him. I'll give you a th- another uh, twist that I think we're going to have to contend with. Barack Obama was unusual for a U.S. president leaving office because he did chime in on his successor quite a bit. I'm not talking about the uh, inter- the supposed conspiracy to uh, stop Trump from governing, but more that he would comment, uh, whether it was on a, a shooting or, or something, and he would be quite critical of the president. Donald Trump is a norm buster, and he will be the same. So imagine a Joe Biden as president trying to straddle these polar opposites of his base versus the Trump base, and Donald Trump on Rush Limbaugh on his own show out there talking every day about Joe Biden being a loser, the election was stolen from him. I think we have a real risk that if we lose, government becomes dysfunctional under Biden. Uh, He's not the strongest leader. He won't necessarily have a huge policy mandate. And he has uh, shaky issues with his base, just just like Republicans do with Trump's base. So I I think it's going to be a tough four years, no matter who wins the election, unfortunately. So then how should Canada uh, prepare for what happens next, any of those scenarios? Because in another sense, Chris, you know, the unthinkable has now become the remotely possible. Uh, and I underline the word remotely, but it used to be unthinkable. And I'm, you know, such as social collapse, uh, a form of civil war, mass migration out of the United States. I mean, there's 800,000 Canadians living in the United States right now. And, you know, if things really go south, they may want to pick up their Canadian passport and come home and maybe bring three or four American friends with them. So, mm-hmm. well, you know, whether it's Canada, whether it's, you know, but let's talk about Canada. What should we be doing, not only as a country, but maybe even as, uh, you know, commercial enterprises, companies, anybody who has dealings with the United States, what, how should we prepare for any of those eventual scenarios? Or can you? Well, I, I think there are a couple of things that Canadians can do, whether they're living in the United States or, or living in, in Canada. It starts with recognizing that this next presidency, the next four years, are going to be a period of transition. I think one of the challenges in American politics is that uh, the millennial generation is now our biggest block of voters. And they became that in 2016. They didn't show up uh, in great numbers, thinking that they couldn't really get behind Hillary Clinton and they didn't like Trump either. We saw in 2018 they showed up. They'll they'll be a very big factor uh, this year. And I think the interesting thing is to is to look at how their politics evolves and how it changes. First, I think as most young people are, they were very idealist coming into politics and didn't find that politics offered them very much. The baby boom and older generation that uh, that, that governs in the United States responded to the idealism with ideology. Uh, which was a very dangerous mix because it pushed people more to the polls and it it put a um, it put a premium on fidelity to ideological solutions rather than pragmatic solutions. 
as the millennials gradually become uh, a force and find their voice, I think what they're going to find, as many generations in the past have, is that idealism is tempered by a desire for results uh, and a sort of pragmatic spirit that comes when you have a mortgage or just student loans that feel like a mortgage uh, that you have to pay. And I, I suspect that we will see this generation really come into its own in 2024, the next big election. What does that mean for Canada? Well, Canadians have traditionally had good relations with the American establishment, which is on the outs with the American public at the moment, whether it's Republican or Democrat. That doesn't mean you should get rid of American establishment context, but you need to find the new friends. Who are the new leaders? When you see people coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement or uh, out of the environmental movement, how can Canada reconnect with, uh, with these new voices? I think many Canadians in 1968 were looking at the, at the riots and the civil unrest that was part of the uh, civil rights movement and said, well, we can't really relate to that. We have nothing to say to that particular agenda. It's, it's not a Canadian experience. But it was important then and it's important now to listen and engage and be relevant uh, to those conversations. And if you don't mind my picking a a scab here, Mm -hmm. I think we'll look back and think that Stephen Harper left us a legacy of one of the biggest geopolitical strategic blunders ever, which was canceling funding for Canadian studies, and it certainly wasn't a lot of money, in the U.S. and abroad. At exactly the time these millennials were on campuses, Canada was absent and Canadian studies programs were dying. And so you could have had a a sort of friendly base. Uh, You don't. And it was, uh, I think, penny wise, but pound foolish for uh, for Canada to have done so. But you need to meet the new leaders in the United States um, and an active engagement that isn't you know, necessarily uh, trying to push an agenda, but trying to connect with these issues and with these, um, these new rising leaders, I think is an, is an absolute necessity for Canada, um, especially if we're going to renew the partnership as we've done in the past. Yeah, and I can certainly uh, underline your concern about that legacy of you know, Canadian studies or Canada-US studies. Uh, I had a daughter who was taking her master's degree at George Washington University, on the relationship between Canada and the United States when it came to military and intelligence matters. And the Canadian government absolutely refused to have anything to do with it. And she was the only person in the United States at any university studying the relationship and Canada couldn't care less. So I I just wanted to bolster your point about that because that happened during that period you were talking about. But getting back to the here and now, um, you know, the, the polls in this country are absolutely clear. Canadians by a vast margin would love to see the end of Donald Trump. But let's take a look at what happens for Canadians under a Joe Biden administration. Democrats are talking loudly about America first policies. You talked about that earlier in this podcast. You talked about them, uh, you know, USMCA, or we, I guess we're calling it NAFTA 2.0, but whatever that thing is, uh, you know, there's a lot of campaign rhetoric, perhaps saying that, you know, we're going to get rid of it or renegotiate it or something. I mean, frankly, Barack Obama said the same thing during his first round. Um, But will it be easier for Canada and more prosperous for Canada under a Biden administration or are we in for a nasty surprise? No, I think a Biden administration will would be on balance positive for Canada because it would be much more traditional in tone. I mentioned that uh, earlier that I thought that if Trump's agenda or his record, policy record, was on the ballot, it would win. And I think it would do well with Canadians, too. 
prior to the pandemic, we had relative prosperity and Canada benefited from that. Uh, the USMCA was painful to negotiate, but resulted in a stable set of rules that made it through Congress. And even the snapback of aluminum tariffs that we were talking about a few weeks ago, which thankfully uh, was was averted, was a um, was an outlier because the USMCA includes in it side letters that should have had a 60-day waiting period or cooling off period before those tariffs could be imposed so that diplomacy could work. And this just happened to be a snapback of tariffs imposed before then. So we have a set of rules for trade that promises to be um, a new a new normal, a new stable normal. I think Canadians can look forward to that with a Biden presidency. NATO has survived, so they can focus on NATO, and they can uh, also hope that, uh, that, that a President Biden would uh, continue to honor contracts and traditions, his G7 meetings would be uh, insult-free. Um, all of that, I think, would take the relationship's uh, tension down quite a bit. It doesn't mean that Canada wouldn't have work to do, and I suspect um, it wouldn't satisfy everyone, but I think we're not that far off of a good relationship. It's hard to point to a lot of things other than Donald Trump's abrasive personality and uh, his difficult relationship with Justin Trudeau that's really wrong, per se. And given that we're waiting for this new era, or at least I would advise we wait for the new era in four years, I think we can hold tight with that. There's one, if I can put this out there, there's one wild card. And I think it's one of the more difficult ones, and that is the U.S. uh, standoff with China. And that obviously has big implications for Canada. And I've seen Republicans and Democrats really harden that line uh, here. Uh, the U.S. may not be in a new Cold War, but it sure feels like it. And, it, it. and it's something that has broad popular support. I think that complicates Canada's relationship because in some ways there's a North Pacific Triangle and, and you're one end of it. And if the other two are fighting, it's going to cause real problems for Canada. That I think will continue even if Joe Biden is president. And and I think having finding a way to talk to the Americans about China uh, and engage and make sure that the Americans are better aware of Canada's equities in this fight and uh, and its vulnerabilities, I think is really essential. If you say anything about Donald Trump about his foreign policy, he's done a few things that are good, some some peace deals, but he has been really uh, terrible at maintaining relationships with middle powers, with second tier powers who have been the, the the real force multiplier for the U.S. and diplomacy for for quite a long time. So uh, that's something we, we, we've got to hope will get better under President Biden if, in fact, we end up with one. Yeah. And I, I, I just say that Canada is probably already feeling that pinch. I mean, if you take a look at the Meng Wanzhou case uh, and, and the two Michaels uh, being held hostage, well, hostage, I mean, they're on death row uh, now and all because of the Meng Wanzhou case. So, you know, in a way, Canada is already factored in largely into that very thing that you're describing. Chris, it, I, I've only got a minute left, but uh, when you look to November 3rd and probably well beyond November 3rd before we know exactly what's going on, are you generally optimistic or are you worried? I I have to say I'm a little worried. I'm worried for a couple of reasons. We certainly don't have guardrails around uh, political discourse now. And I think they're already, on both parties, are guilty of this. Their activists are already questioning whether this is even going to be a free and fair election. Um, Part of it is the difficulty of holding an election during a pandemic. But part of it also is a mix of mail-in ballots, suspicions about who might be cooking what books and whether this will end up in front of the Supreme Court. 
Now, we could have a landslide, which might be accepted on all sides, but I worry that this election is going to produce a result that at least a significant portion of Americans feel is illegitimate. And we've just been through an experience, if you take Trump out of the equation, where it was very difficult after 2016 for the U.S. to start getting things done and and find its feet. Um, And that's before we had pandemics and everything else uh, mixing things up. So I worry that it'll be a while before the situation stabilizes, potentially quite a long while. And that's not good. We talked about China before. Um, Chaos in the U.S. uh, serves the interest of U.S. rivals, whether it's China or Russia. There'll be more trouble on that front. And it makes it harder for Canada to connect. Um, You don't want to interfere, just as as Gretchen didn't want to interfere with the hanging chads when it was Bush v. Gore in that 2000 election. It's just an awkward situation. It feels almost like the neighbors are getting a divorce and all you can hear from next door is they're shouting at the top of their lungs and you would like to go over and, 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 and be friendly and you want to support them, but you just can't right now until the shouting stops. And it should stop after November 3rd, but I have a feeling we'll be, um, we'll be shouting for a while. And that's going to make us well, at least noisy neighbors uh, and hard to engage with. Well, as somebody said, it's like living above a meth lab and uh, having to deal with that. But, you know, Chris, uh, after November 3rd, you're always welcome to come up here. Uh, we've got a room for you and your family. <laughs> and uh, anyway, Chris Sands of the Canada Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Chris, always great talking to you. And we will continue to talk to you uh, until this is figured out one way or another. I'm looking forward to it, Tom. Thanks. Thanks very much for being with us. That is this edition of The Take. By the way, if you want to follow me online, my Twitter handle is at TomClarkGPA. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future editions. In the meantime, I'm Tom Clark. Thanks again for being here, and we will see you on the next edition of The Take.